Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much, Mel. Thank you very much to the uh, World Affairs Council of Dallas, to the American Jewish Committee. I'm, I'm particularly indebted to Mel Kuzan for his kind of... His Is this uh, back on? Um, I just... Pardon? Is it off again? Or Okay. I... Okay. Take two. Um, I wanted to thank the... World Affairs Council and the American Jewish Committee, and in particular to thank Mel Kuzan for the, his hospitality and the invitation to speak before this group, as well as his uh, leadership for this series. I looked at the uh, website, and it's really just a, an amazing array of different speakers and topics that you cover through this series. As Mel mentioned, uh, this is my uh, second uh, visit to Dallas uh, to speak to this group. Uh, the last one was on January 24th, 2001. And I appeared just after a book I had written uh, entitled Rogue States had been published. The book Rogue States came out of an experience I had that Mel mentioned working on the National Security Council staff in the mid-1990s. At that time, the term rogue state had entered our diplomatic lexicon. Uh, The Clinton administration asserted that rogue states constituted a distinct category of states in the international system. So when I left the the, uh, NSC to go back to my uh, position at the Woodrow Wilson Center, I wanted to write a a book about that experience, and I wanted to write a book that was in keeping with the mission of the Woodrow Wilson Center. For those of you that are, are not familiar with it, the Woodrow Wilson Center is the nation's official memorial to our 28th president. It's located in the Ronald Reagan Building. It memorializes Wilson by promoting the interaction between the worlds of learning and the worlds of public policy. It memorializes Wilson, in short, his his role uh, as president of Princeton University as well as president of the United States. And much of what the center does is uh, to provide the context for contemporary policy issues by looking at the underlying assumptions, by providing a cultural context. Uh, We have... uh, we bring uh, many speakers and visiting fellows to Washington to bring foreign perspectives to uh, to the public policy debate in Washington. Our current our president is is uh, the former Congressman Lee Hamilton, who chaired uh, vice chairman of the 9/11 Commission, and uh, our institution has. Uh, uh, I've been at the center since 1983, has really flourished under, under his leadership. But the book I wrote on, on rogue states was an example of the kind of work that's done at the center. Because I took the concept, rogue state, where did it come from? How did it get translated into policy? What were some of the, uh, the uh, contradictions and the uh, dilemmas that were raised by trying to take a category, a catch-all category of rogue state, and lump under that very diverse states ranging from North Korea to Libya to Cuba. And without going on at length about that previous book, uh, the thesis of the book, the critique, was that by lumping a very diverse group together of states together, it, it uh, frustrated the United States' ability to pursue a coherent policy toward them. It was a politically selective uh, policy. A state like uh, Cuba 
which didn't have weapons of mass destruction and wasn't very active in terrorism. It was, it was included, whereas a state like Syria, uh, which, which was doing both, was omitted from the list of rogue states because it was needed for the Middle East peace process in the 1990s. So in the book, I tried to, to look at, at this term, how it got translated into policy and some of the problems. Uh, former Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, uh, was the founding father of the, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan was the founding father of the Woodrow Wilson Center and he said that how we think about the world affects how we act in the world so the, the mission of the Woodrow Wilson Center is to look at the context how do we think about these issues and it's for that reason that under the twin impact of 9-11 and the Iraq War I decided to revisit the issue that I looked at in 2001 the rogue state issue and to look at it in the, in the uh, new context 9-11 did not change the structure of international relations. Despite all the claims, it's changed everything. The world is, will never be the same. It didn't change the structure of international relations, how states were um, uh, interacted with each other. Indeed, what was striking was the extent to which 9-11 reinforced the existing structure of international relations as states such as China and Russia saw how an attack on the United States blowing up the World Trade Center could affect uh, global capital flows and affect the global economy into which both of those states were seeking to increasingly integrate. The big story of international relations since the end of the Cold War has been that the United States' former communist adversaries, China and Russia, uh, as well as uh, democratizing states in Latin America, the new uh, uh, successor regimes in Eastern Europe, have been attempting to integrate into the system. The grand strategy of the United States in the 1990s and continuing to this day according to the former director of policy planning at the State Department, is integration. Now, the United States has played the lead role in this integration process. Uh, integration into what? Integration into a series of institutions that the United States played the key role in, in constructing after World War II, the World Bank, the IMF, all of the institutions that made it possible <laughs> for the West after World, War, after World War II to emerge as the largest community of democracies with market uh, economies, created enormous wealth and security for the largest number of people in, uh, in, in world history. The story of, of uh, the, the, after, the, after the Cold War was how other states could be integrated into that system. That was the big change. That, w that preceded 9-11. Uh, and indeed, 9-11 just reinforced the need for this integration process to, 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 uh, uh, to, to continue. Now, within that context, the United States was perceived as pre-9-11 as a benign superpower, by which I mean that after World War II, the United States, with these made-in-America institutions, had increasingly embedded its power within those institutions and norms. And as a consequence, American power was viewed as less threatening and more legitimate to other states. And that accounts for one of the big uh, mysteries, the, the puzzles of the 1990s, uh, that balance of power theorists couldn't really answer. If you're a balanced power theorist, you believe that everyone's trying to balance power, why wasn't there balancing of American power after uh, the Cold War ended? America emerged as the sole remaining superpower, as Madeleine Albright put it. It was the hyperpower, as the French foreign minister put it, a super-duper power, as American, one American diplomat put it. And yet, the prediction that a balance of power theorist would have made, that the rest of the world would have been balancing American power, didn't occur. And that's a striking point that speaks to the, to the uh, nature of the post-World War II and post-Cold War uh, uh, structure of international relations. 9-11 did not change that. 
the change, the reason why people spoke about post 9-11 as we're living in a world is BC, AD, a new era of vulnerability. It wasn't new vulnerability. Uh, Osama bin Laden's network was operating in the 1990s. They blew up our embassies in Tanzania and Kenya in 1998. They tried to, to knock down the trade towers in 1993. The, the vulnerability was there, but after 9-11, it was newly appreciated. That was the, the change. It was a psychological change after 9-11. After 9-11, after as one push and put it, uh, uh, the Bush administration realized that there was a threat and that that threat was not China. Recall that pre-9-11, the Bush administration had been talking increasingly about a rising China um, uh, as a threat. In a, a critical uh, a Bush administration document, a White House document, the National Security Strategy document of September 2002, the Bush administration characterized the nature of the new threat. Now, you've heard perhaps or read in the paper about the National Security Strategy document. There was one just published this year. There was one published in 2002. This is a document that all administrations uh, generate on, uh, in, in compliance with uh, congressional uh, regulations, which lays out what is our strategy. And it's, it, uh, it's, a, it's a broad statement of where U.S. strategy is. The 2002 one, which was uh, a year after 9-11 and the first of the Bush administration, was striking. It argued that the threats that the United States faces in the post-9-11 period derive from the character of its adversaries, rogue states and terrorist groups. Rogue states were unpredictable. They were potentially irrational. They would use nuclear weapons as a cover for regional aggression. And most critically, they might transfer nuclear weapons to a terrorist group. The Bush administration talked about the, spoke about the nexus between uh, proliferation and terrorism, which is sort of the broad context of my remarks today. And as Mel mentioned, I'm going to focus in a little later, particularly on Iran because it's so topical. What's striking in the framing of the nonproliferation issue is that the Bush administration is less interested in nonproliferation as a general norm than in keeping nuclear weapons out of the hands of particular states. This, again, speaks to that the definition of the problem derives from the character of the adversaries, the character of the states. So you saw this interesting juxtaposition when the uh, Indian prime minister was in Washington last summer that concluded the U.S.-Indian nuclear deal, highly contentious in the nonproliferation community. The, Bush, the White House uh, statement said that the United States was engaging in nuclear commerce with India, even though India had flouted uh, international norms on proliferation or non-proliferation because India was a quote-unquote responsible state. So there was this distinction between responsible states like in India and by contrast implicitly irresponsible states, the rogue states uh, such as, uh, such as uh, Iran. Now this argument figured um, centrally uh, this issue of the character of the regime figured centrally in the debate leading up to, to, to the Iraq War. The Iraq War uh, had been preceded in the previous year um, by the elevation of, as you recall, military preemption in U.S. strategy. That elevation also occurred in that 2002 National Security Strategy document that I spoke about. And uh, the document uh, asserts that, that, that military preemption, striking before you will be hit by an adversary, was being elevated quote-unquote, as a matter of common sense. And indeed it is. If al-Qaeda was teeing up another attack on the United States, you would not wait to sustain the blow before, before, uh, striking, uh, before striking. The concern was 
uh, twofold. First, what if other countries began to operationalize this principle? What if India said, we're going to have a preemptive strike against Pakistan? One of the critiques of the preemption doctrine was that uh, what if this became the new norm in international relations? You'd have a, a, a chaos in the international system. The second uh, aspect of the critique of the preemption doctrine was that it conflated two different terms, preemption and prevention. Preemption is permissible under international law and the UN Charter in the face of an imminent threat. A good example was what Israel did before the start of the Six-Day War when it struck Egyptian and Syrian uh, uh, airfields before the, before the world started. That was an attack on Israel was imminent, and that was an example of military preemption. By contrast, what we did with, uh, in, in the case of, of uh, Iraq, it was a preventive action. I mean, the threat from Saddam Hussein was not at that time an imminent threat to this country. It may have been a cumulative threat. There may have been a case for it. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But it was not an imminent threat. Now, this all came to head in the Iraq war debate. And I think it's worth uh, spending a moment just to characterize that debate because it does uh, reflect uh, these underlying trends, and it has consequences for how the Iran debate may well play out. In the Iraq debate, there was a uh, curious parallelism on the two sides of the Atlantic. On the, and I'll, I'll flag two speeches on the American side. In August of, of 2002, Vice President Cheney, as you may recall, gave a speech that got much was much publicized at the time uh, to the veterans of foreign wars, in which he gave a full-throttled endorsement of the new preemption doctrine. And, he's, and he argued in that speech, I'm presenting it telegraphically here, that the United States would not, does not need a permission slip from the Security Council, but in the face of a threat from Saddam Hussein, the United States would act unilaterally if necessary. That was sort of a robust statement of the preemption doctrine. One month later, President Bush spoke at the General Assembly. He gave a speech framing the Iraq debate. It was a speech that not only could Bill Clinton have given, but Woodrow Wilson could have given. He framed the uh, Iraq war debate as an enforcement operation enforcing Security Council resolutions and that if the U United Nations Security Council did not step up and enforce its own resolutions that the Security Council would become a latter-day League of Nations. Now on the other side of the Atlantic, parallel debate. Prime Minister Tony Blair gave a brilliant House of Commons address in March 2003 which was uh, the best sort of internationalist case for war in Iraq. But then you had the French, German, and Russian reactions. Their reaction was not to the Bush General Assembly speech. Their reaction was to the Cheney speech. And you saw what did not happen in the 1990s, what I spoke about a few minutes ago, the first attempt to balance American power. That uh, Foreign Minister de Villepin went on his world tour trying to actively develop a coalition against the United States. And it was a form of balancing that did not occur in the 1990s. There's a whole academic debate now going on about balancing in, in the scholarly, scholarly journals. After the war, after the, the toppling of, of uh, Saddam Hussein, rather, because we, that then segued into this uh, current uh, insurgency, um, one saw an incentive on both sides to come together. On the American side, one saw increased... Uh, perception of the utility of, of multilateralism, that it's good to have allies because they'll do things for you and they'll help pay for things, and also that it, it makes the whole venture more legitimate if you have others on board. And on the European side, you saw that, there, that the dream that the French president laid out that there, we could enter a multipolar system uh, was uh, an illusion. Uh, he talked about trying to recreate the 19th century European state system. 
in a globalized economy, uh, balancing American power, creating yourself as a separate uh, pole, uh, is a non-starter. And uh, the French have rattled ba throttled back their own rhetoric. They now speak about multilateralism, not multipolarity. And multipolarity was a word that caused great distress uh, in, in, in Washington. Now, I think that sets a context for which we can turn now and, and, and focus on, on the Iran issue. Uh, Secretary of State Rice states that we face no greater challenge, her words, than Iran. Mm -hmm. And this is striking given we're at war in Iraq and we've just finished a war in Afghanistan. So the statement that this, we face no greater threat than Iran is a striking one. The Bush administration, with reason, views nor, uh, Iran as a more dynamic threat than North Korea. North Korea has a much more advanced nuclear weapons program. Indeed, it may well have weapons. Iran is in a nascent phase. It's emerging nuclear weapons program. But Iran is viewed as a more dynamic threat. This is, all, this is not only a reflection of the fact that there's really not, there are no good options on dealing with North Korea, but also North Korea is viewed as a failed state, a besieged regime, defensive. Uh, it's not trying to export a revolution. Whereas Iran, the combination of uh, the Ahmadinejad rhetoric and the ideology underlying that, as well as the oil revenues that they're currently getting at $70 a barrel, makes Iran a much more dynamic threat in the eyes, in, in, you know, uh, in the view of policymakers than the North Korea. And that's why Secretary Rice would say it's the most important problem. As I said um, at the outset, we're now addressing the Iran uh, crisis through the prism of 9-11 as well as Iraq. Through the prism of 9-11 is the uh, subtitle of, of my new book. Uh, the new book is called Regime Change. Uh, what I did for Rogue State, I'm trying to do for, re for the term regime change, which has entered our lexicon. And as I, as I stated at the outset, um, the change after 9-11 was this, this sense that the problem is the regimes themselves, that the behavior is inextricably tied into the character of the regime, so that if you want to change the behavior, you have to change the regimes themselves. And this has created a fundamental tension in our debate that's unresolved over North Korea, over Iran. What is our objective? Is it to change the regime or is it to change the behavior? Now, when you define the, the, the objective as regime change, it's hugely contentious in the international community because it comes, flies against the cardinal principle of international relations, which is sovereignty. All regimes will seek to preserve their sovereignty. Um, the reason why Bush 41 had a relatively easy time in putting together a Gulf War coalition for the first Gulf War was that Saddam Hussein had violated the cardinal rule of international relations, which is don't murder another state when he occupied Kuwait. So states from Albania to Zimbabwe could agree on let's reverse Iraqi aggression in, in Iraq, in, in Kuwait. By contrast, Bush 43 faced a much more difficult case because what he was arguing was, in essence, that, the, um, that in order to bring about Iraqi compliance with the Security Council resolutions from the first Gulf War, which had mandated comprehensive WMD disarmament, you got to overthrow the Iraqi regime because Saddam Hussein will never do it. He's constitutionally incapable of it. In a sense, the mission in 2003 was the negation of Iraqi sovereignty by overthrowing uh, the regime. And that led to the contentious debate that we had. In 2003, there were two important nonproliferation precedents set. The first was Iraq, which you're all familiar with. And after Iraq, um, there was a, a, a uh, division within the Bush administration on how to interpret the Iraq uh, precedent. Some of the hardliners spoke about Iraq 
as a type. But a type in what respect? It wasn't clear because of this divide. Within the office of the, of the Vice President and the Department of Defense, uh, Iraq was viewed as an application of the national security strategy uh, of preemption. And it was a stark warning to other states, give up your WMD capabilities or face similar treatment potentially. And as one um, former, uh, uh, as one administration official put it to the Los Angeles Times, and I, I think this is a, an amazing quote, he, he said, the lesson of the Iraq war for Iran was take a number. Within, within the administration, pragmatists uh, were uh, strongly argued uh, to the contrary. They, they said that Iraq was a unique case a uniquely bad actor with a unique set of circumstances deriving from the first Gulf War. And that if the United States made the case to other countries that Iraq was a precedent that could be applied to them, rather than getting them to give up their WMD capabilities, it might lead countries like North Korea and Iran and Libya to hit the gas on their programs, the argument being, we got to get a nuclear weapon as quickly as possible to deter the United States. So they had this schism within the Bush administration over, over that, over these two precedents, over, over the Iraq precedent. But there was a second precedent in 2003 that was very significant that got less attention. And I'm speaking here of the December 2003 decision by Muammar Gaddafi to unilaterally give up his weapons of mass destruction. Now, in Libya, uh, uh, there were two, in the case of Libya, there were two contrasting explanations for why the Libyan turn? Why did, why did Gaddafi give it up? The first explanation from the, from the administration and supporters of the Iraq war was that it was a dividend of the Iraq war, that the Iraq war had, as one, per, one uh, official put it, Iraq, uh, Libya was scared straight, that if they didn't uh, give up their WMD capabilities, they would get the same treatment. Uh, former Clinton administration officials correctly pointed out that the dialogue with, with Libya that began really over the Pan Am 103 bombing and, and trying to resolve that case in the 1990s. Those negotiations went back to the 1990s. There was an article in Foreign Affairs, one, official, one uh, uh, former official referred to, uh, citing John le Carré, that Libya was trying to come in from the cold. And they pointed to domestic, political, and economic motivations uh, that were at work with Gaddafi. A primary of those was, it's hard for us to believe now, but uh, the 1990s uh, was a low point in the international oil market, and Gaddafi was really feeling the pinch at home, particularly with the key constituencies that kept the regime in power. So he had an incentive to come in from the cold and to try to rehabilitate Libya to reenter the global economy so he could gain the revenues to keep the, re to keep the regime going. Now, these two explanations have been the ones put out why um, why Gaddafi made the decision he did. Uh, scared straight or just trying to tend to his own national interests. I think both of those explanations speak to the motivation of Gaddafi, but they don't speak to the core issue of why the change in his intention to acquire nuclear capabilities and other unconventional capabilities. I have a whole section in my uh, new book dealing with that. And here I think, when I, to, I, I think I argue that the crux of the deal with Libya was an offer of, of regime security, a security assurance, that if Gaddafi ended the external behavior of concern to the United States with respect to terrorism and weapons proliferation, that the United States, in turn, would not seek regime change in Tripoli. That was the crux of the deal. 
get out of the business outside of your country that bothers us, and we will not covertly or through support of insurgencies or other means over to overturn uh, your, your, uh, your regime. The deal would not have happened in the absence of that. If, if, if the message from Washington had been, take a number, Gaddafi would have gone flat out to get his own deterrent to try to deter the United States. He would have either tried to accelerate his own program, which was a pretty hapless program, try to buy it from Pakistan, do whatever he could to get a deterrent to deal with the United States. In the case of Libya, as one uh, official put it, the United States was willing to take yes for an answer when Gaddafi said, get out of the business that really the most concerned us. Now let's turn to the, uh, within that context, let's turn to uh, the case of Iran, because this framework that I've been trying to lay out for the la- that I've laid out for the last few minutes affects the context within which we deal with Iran. Is our is our is the United States objective regime change or beha- behavior change? The issue, the immediate issue, is does Iran's civilian nuclear energy program mask a clandestine weapons program? The International Atomic Energy Agency last month reported Iran to the Security Council. The Security Council passed a resolution saying, telling Iran to report back to the IAEA and the Security Council uh, within 30 days, which comes up this Friday. Iran is in deep denial. It's asserting that it's just, uh, 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 it's asserting that it's just carrying out its right under the Non-Proliferation Treaty to develop a civil, civil nuclear energy sector. Under Article 4 of the NPT, states that, and this treaty was signed during the Shah's period, and the the revolutionary regime never opted out of the NPT. They're part of the NPT. They're saying under Article 4, we get civil nuclear technology in return for the commitment to not go for a weapons option. And uh, the problem is that the indicators point towards a weapons option, including an uh, an 18-year covert uh, program that only came to light in, in 2002 and 2003. Iran is focused in particular on this issue of uranium enrichment and the nuclear fuel cycle. And I have friends who have just been to, to Tehran recently, and they have friends that they report, you know, cab drivers are saying Iran should be able to enrich uranium. Um, all of you uh, have seen this in, in the, the paper. As the Iran debate comes to a head, you'll see more about uranium enrichment. Let me just briefly uh, give you the, uh, uh, the crash course in it. Natural uranium occurs in two forms. as you recall from high school chemistry, is uranium-238. The less dense isotope is U-235, but U-235 makes up just 1% of uh, natural uranium, but it's the fissile isotope. It could be used for for civil uh, energy generation, nuclear energy. Uranium enrichment is the industrial process of increasing the percentage of U-235, the fissile isotope. How is this done? Uranium ore is crushed into a powder. It's refined and then reconstituted uh, into a solid form known as yellow cake. The yellow cake is then superheated into a gas, uranium hexafluoride. I'm really giving it to you in brief, but you go from yellow cake to the uranium hexafluoride. Then you take the uranium hexafluoride and you pass it through a centrifuge spun at high speed. And recall, you know, centripetal forces, the heavier isotope goes to the outer edges and the lighter one will collect in the center. So you have the U-235 in the center and the U-238 at the periphery. You pass it through centrifuge after centrifuge and you increase the density of of U-235. And that uh, running a series of centrifuges in parallel is called a cascade. 
That's what the Iranians have been able to accomplish now. They have your centrifuges operating in parallel, a cascade, and they're, they're trying to, they are enriching uranium. Uh, light, low enriched uranium of 2 to 3 percent is what is needed for a civil nuclear reactor. Uh, enrichment at 90 percent, high enriched uranium is necessary for a bomb. <clears throat> the concern is that centrifuges that are spinning in Iran to create low enriched uranium for nuclear reactors that don't even exist can keep spinning and yield high enriched uranium that would be capable of producing a nuclear weapon. It takes 20 to 25 kilograms of high enriched uranium uh, to produce a bomb. According to the Institute for Strategic Studies, Iran has 85 metric tons of uranium hexafluoride in Esfahan, and that's enough feedstock for a dozen nuclear weapons. It has a pilot uranium enrichment plant at Matanz, and it plans to construct a commercial facility, a commercial scale facility, with up to 50,000 uh, centrifuges at Natanz in, a, in an underground uh, site that they're, they're completing. <coughs> there have been glitches in the uranium, uh, Iran's uranium enrichment program, but Iran has essentially mastered the technology, and it's substantially self-sufficient in the production of, of centrifuges. It has a lot of the uh, machine tools necessary to make uh, centrifuges. They rely on some exported material. Um, but is, is there an export control option? Could we just keep the sensitive technology out of their hands so they, don't, they can't produce enough ca uh, centrifuges to, to develop uh, a large weapons program with highly enriched uranium? Not, it's not encouraging because they have the machine tools. There's some specialized materials that they need from the outside. But those materials are hard to control because they're ubiquitous in this sort of nuclear commerce field, and they have so-called dual-use applications. They can be used for civil, side, uh, civil technology as well as, as, as well as military application. So the good news is that Iran is probably, is, is by the CIA estimated to be five to ten years away from the bomb, according to the, the uh, latest uh, assessment from the CIA presented to Congress. But the bad news is that all the political trends are negative. Let me turn to those briefly. Uh, is the Islamic Republic of Iran. The very name, Islamic Republic, uh, Islamic Republic it, it underscores the duality uh, at work in that society. And I've drawn on experts, the expert literature on Iran. Iran is a republic. That is, it's a state like any other state in the <coughs> international system. At the same time, it argues through its, its the Islamic uh, identity, it's, it refers to a source of legitimacy that goes outside of the international system. So that the political, the, the, the issue at the heart of the political debate in Iran is how does Iran manage this dual identity between being a republic, a state like any other state, which means play by the rules, the norms of the institutions, be part of the system, and an Islamic identity, which argues that legitimacy is vested outside of the international, the state system, and that thing, op, behavior such as providing okay. assistance for suicide bombers in, in Palestine is acceptable because of furthering uh, of the, these Islamic objectives. That's that's uh, the broad context, and that one goes right back to the to the start of the revolution. Ahmadi Najad um, has ratcheted up the, the the rhetoric with exterminationist rhetoric about Israel. Um, a virulently hardline uh, U.S. policy, and he ended uh, the uranium enrichment moratorium that had been negotiated with the European Union foreign ministers um, in 2004 and 2005. Uh, this was um, 
the, the European Union had been successful in freezing the program, and Ahmadinejad came into power <laughs> and, and broke that, that, that moratorium. He's been brilliant in casting the issue in nationalist terms, saying that uh, Iran is asserting its right to enrich uranium, to the fuel cycle, etc., um, and that uh, the West, meaning the United States, is trying to keep Iran down, trying to keep Iran weak, deny technology. So it's brilliant sort of jujitsu in terms of uh, uh, political jujitsu that they're able to turn the question in, within Iranian domestic politics as being not Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapon, but rather Iran as a nationalist issue, Iran is asserting its right to uh, have advanced technology. The Iranian program, it's not a crash program. They're not going flat out to get a nuclear weapon. It's persistent, it's determined, it's been incremental. You could contrast it to a country like Pakistan, which views vis-a-vis -vis India, that it, it, has, it faces an existential threat. Iran is not a crash program the way other countries have been. It seems like India to be more motivated by prestige, a sense of, of, of regional role. Um, Iran may want to become an overt nu nuclear weapon state like Pakistan, and the leadership may believe uh, they can ride out the political heat, given the tight oil market. Um, uh, but um, uh, that, that would be uh, that is a calculation we do not know if they've taken yet we don't know if they've made an, an irreversible decision to acquire nuclear weapons it may seem it may be that they are trying to develop a hedge develop the capability uh, to have a nuclear option if they want now within that context and uh, I'm about out of time so let me just flag it for the discussion period we have two options there's the military option and negotiations and uh, uh, for reasons I can elaborate, uh, the military option um, is, is not an attractive one. Um, uh, but why don't I just leave it at that as a sort of a shorthand um, and then talk about the negotiations, which would be, um, which are equally problematic. Um, uh, I think my bottom line is that we should try to restore what the European Union had negotiated, try to restore the freeze, the moratorium on the uranium enrichment program. Got some ideas on how that can be, uh, how that. Uh, is, is something that's worth pursuing at least. Not guaranteed success, but worth pursuing. But in my bottom line on, on the Iran question in terms of the coherence of the American debate, we continue to be pulled by this uh, conflicting, these conflicting pulls of whether our objective toward Iran should be to change the regime or to change the regime's behavior. The problem is that we can't change the, the, the regime in the near term and we face an imminent nuclear crisis which we have to deal with and that means dealing with the regime. So let me uh, end that with my formal remarks there and uh, open it up for comments and questions from the floor. Great questions. Mani Nijad, uh, is he the regime? Uh, I think he is, he is legitimate. I mean, uh, he, his behavior uh, has been truly bizarre um, uh, when it's not being, a high, you know, just uh, beyond the pale. Uh, he went to the United Nations. He, was, he went back to Iran. He was talking to a senior imam there. He said that there was a light on him and that everyone in the room was transfixed. They could not move. Um, uh, someone from another research institute uh, uh, in Washington said there's not enough kind of high-end uh, 
you know, neurological pharmaceuticals that one can use with this guy. Um, uh, uh, he's the real deal. He told, uh, and this has sort of an apocalyptic, uh, uh, you know, phrase to it uh, that, that speaks to the second question. He has spoken about the the, the hidden uh, the hidden imam, and that the purpose of, uh, of of the Islamic Republic is to prepare the way for the return of the hidden imam, which is somewhat apocalyptic in that that day is judgment day. So uh, um, this, that's, you're, you're quite right in pointing that out. Not only that, but also exterminationist uh, rhetoric about Israel. And, and uh, uh, I've, uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, Israeli scholar who was in a meeting uh, with, with, uh, uh, in Turkey with some, some Iranians, and they were going on, and, and, and he said, you know, you guys say death Israel, and you're going for an atomic bomb. You can say, you can get an atomic bomb but you can't say death to Israel. If you say death to Israel, you know you, you can't get an atomic bomb. So pick pick which one it is. And this goes to the issue of the of the, of the regime and the weapon in the hand of the of the of, of the particular regime. One seen already, and there is evidence of uh, evidence of it. And, and here it gets a little criminological because it's an opaque decision making process in in, uh, in in Tehran that of some effort to reign in Ahmadinejad, for example. Um, the supreme leader, uh, whose own views are pretty, pretty, pretty extreme, but he's been in power since Kada- uh, Khomeini passed um, in in the late 1980s. He has been using. Uh, he he brought Rafsanjani and put him into the Expediency Council. He's been using the the, the nu- nuclear negotiator Larajani does not report to the president. He reports to the supreme leader. They put some uh, representatives there. So there have been. Efforts made to sort of to rein him in, but yet he is the public face of, of this regime. And uh, um, but it, there are multiple power centers, and uh, uh, if one took uh, the apocalyptic uh, uh, view to heart, I mean, the real question is: is we is would Iran be deterrable? And would Iran be would Iran would Iran be deterrable? Is and is the the known danger of a preventive military action to deal with a nuclear program while it's in its, its, in its, in its infancy, relatively, um, is that are those known dangers less than the unknown dangers of what if Iran requires a nuclear weapon? Now, there's a debate in the in the field that um, if Iran required a nuclear weapon, it could be deterred. I mean, we use deterrence. Um, Joseph Stalin was. Uh, at least as more sociopathic than Ahmadinejad, uh, and mm-hmm. was dealing with, uh, uh, as Kurt Vonnegut would find, an interesting sort of uh, uh, set of brain chemicals, um, uh, and yet we, we fell back on deterrence in those days. I think that the point I would make about, on, uh, that, that then really segues into the part of the talk, uh, which is sort of the one hour version of this, not the half hour version, mm-hmm. about military options, is they're just not very attractive. Because, let me run through them briefly, and then. Um, I'll get to China and, and, and Russia in a second. You hear talk about, let's do an OSIRAC, and that's a reference to the June 1981 Israeli strike on the Iraqi reactor. I have a section in my book that talks about the use of preemptive force in history. All of the conditions of success were, were present in the case of, of OSIRAC. The Israelis had highly accurate intelligence. The nuclear fuel had not been loaded into the reactor so that when it was struck, you weren't spewing radioactivity into downtown Baghdad. And Saddam Hussein did not then have the capability of retaliating against, uh, uh, against Israel. None of those 
conditions are present in Iran. Iran would retaliate. Iran would not, we'd have our briefers saying, this is a limited surgical strike against Iran's nuclear facilities. It would be interpreted as the initiation of a preventive war against Iran. And I think in terms of our public policy debate, we've got to be really upfront and honest about this. This is not a surgical strike. It is not a limited action. It would be held synonymously by the Iranian regime as the initiation of a preventive war. And indeed, when one talks to Pentagon planners about, okay, what does that strike attack package that attack package look like? It's pretty big. It's not just one night hitting a couple facilities. Open bombing corridors. It does the things. When we do this, it does what we do, which is air superiority, open bombing corridors, hit command and control centers, hit all the air defense, hit barracks, a lot of stuff. And and uh, this is not a limited a limited uh, a limited action. It would be essentially a decision to go to war with Iran. And we should have no illusion about that. Iran would have retaliation options. As bad as Iraq is now, they would, Iran would make our life hell in Iraq, as well as in Afghanistan. They've got agents that they've already infiltrated across their porous border. They're tied in with the Shiites. We would be at a war with Iran, and the theater would be Iraq, principally. In addition, um, and I, I hesitate to even you know, speak about this in this knowledgeable crowd, I don't know the options for them to use oil as a weapon. You have conflicting signals from the, the uh, Wall Street Journal. The oil minister said they wouldn't use it. Others have said they would use it. I don't know if their options range from, like, just pumping out less oil in a tight market to um, uh, saber-rattling around the Strait of Hormuz and, and insurance rates on tankers go through the roof and uh, the international system, you know, starts uh, – oil uh, system starts uh, uh, grinding down. Uh, finally, there's the issue about how would it affect the Iranian population. And uh, I'm persuaded by scholars who've looked at, at, at Iran and said that it would lead, it would turn the Iranian uh, population uh, deeply and perhaps irreversibly against the United States. And right now we have a pretty good, viewed pretty favorably in Iran, uh, that it would be viewed as an attack on Iran and that the regime would be able to play the nationalist card. Um, and it might well give uh, Ahmadinejad a popularity boost uh, in Iran the way um, President Bush got one in this country after 9-11. And finally, a military strike would not stop the program. It would slow it down, and buying time can mean a lot. Um, but in the end, I think my position is not uh, throw up hands and say, we can't stop it. Well, well, let's just fall back on deterrence. And I don't think they're at the point of no return uh, where we say because they're able to spin centrifuges and enrich uranium that we have to hit them now, as some, as some, some, uh, as some suggest. I think we should do everything we can through diplomacy to try to stop the program. And in the end, uh, you've got to make a determination. Are the known costs of military action – it's one of these utility functions – the known costs of military action greater than or less than the unknown dangers of launching a preventive war against Iran? And right now, I would rather fall back. We've got a toolkit. If we end up in a position where we have to, to deter Iran, they, they are a regime. They have an address. Um, a dis, uh, 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 we could draw red lines that would um, uh, affect their behavior. And those would be, speaking to the thing that, that, that to the, to the, uh, uh, what Mel mentioned uh, uh, today, um, that 
a red line against transferring capabilities to other countries, let alone non-state actors, and, um, and, and using them for, for, uh, as, a, as a shield for regional aggression. This, we did this in our toolkit in, in, in Russia, vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. But I, I don't say let's throw up our hands and, and, and do that. We have to try to stop the program. But I think that, that what's worrisome is that uh, uh, we may be repeating some of the uh, process that we went through on, on Iraq, and I'm sorry to be so long-winded here, but it's sort of the, it's like a critical piece, a uh, supplementary piece of the analysis, where uh, the going-in assumptions are not being critically assessed. There are some that believe that if we struck Iran, it would be like shooting a flare-off to begin the counter-revolution. One hears this out of some think tanks in Washington. One wonders whether that view is subscribed to in the administration, since they believe their current theory of change in Iran is a revolution from below. The problem is that the timeline for the revolution from below, if that's the way it's, if that's going to be the agent of change in Iran, is not in sync with the nuclear timeline, which is which is imminent. Now, I think all of that speaks to uh, the uh, our lack of good leverage and $70 barrel oil who gives Ahmadinejad a lot of options at home to buy off people, uh, largesse to keep uh, uh, the underclass in Iran um, uh, satisfied and quiescent, and uh, in terms of Russia and China, to ensure that what comes out of the Security Council is not really going to, to have teeth. So this is, uh, this is such a, this is a tough case, um, uh, but, and the stakes, are, the stakes are huge. I think that there's been some loose talk about uh, uh, the military action and I think that going to my major point about the mixed message from Washington about whether our, our objective is regime change or behavior change when the president says his mantra, all options are on the table well, all op options are on the table but also all objectives are on the table and if you're sitting in, in Tehran if we were to strike Natanz and I've handicapped that one for you they, I believe it would be viewed as the initiation of a general war. And I don't think if Iran were to strike a facility in the United States and say, this is a limited surgical strike, they would, be, they would have no mistake. They would be at war with the United States the next day. And um, I think we can expect no less from them. And, we, and I'm not advocating one or the other. I'm just saying eyes wide open and know what we were getting into. And we need to have a debate, which we've not had on this. Yes? Well, they have a facility in Bashir, um, uh, or at Esfahan, which is the port city, that's where the uranium, uh, the conversion facility is. Natanz is inland, and uh, it's uh, uh, started as a small, you know, research facility, and now they're they're digging a hole and uh, uh, moving evidently towards a, an industrial scale production facility, and that's what led to this discussion about whether the United States would use a bunker buster to hit this underground facility that was mentioned in the in the Seymour Hirsch piece in the, in the uh, New Yorker last week. Yes, sir. One would think. Um, uh, it's problematic both in Washington and Tehran. Uh, we are dealing directly with North Korea, and many have said, why can't we just deal directly with, with, with Tehran? And there have been some uh, abortive efforts, abortive efforts, in the late 1990s, 1999, 2000. Under Hatami, Bill Clinton was edging towards that. Um, after the... Uh, Iraq War, there were, um, uh, after 9-11 and then again after the Iraq War, there were some signals from, from Tehran in, in interest in it. After the Iraq War, uh, the possibility for dialogue fell apart because 
some al-Qaeda suspects, some al-Qaeda operatives who'd fled out of Afghanistan were being uh, given safe harbor in Iran. Iran, you've got multiple power centers, hardcore groups like the Revolutionary Guards, uh, some reformist elements. It's a, it's, it's a, uh, there are multiple power centers, and you had uh, al-Qaeda operatives in Iran after, after uh, in the spring of 2003, and that became the reason why the Bush administration said that it would not pursue a, a channel of, of dialogue, a dialogue with Tehran. But I think that it's equally loaded in Tehran because America is the great Satan. America is the defining foreign policy issue in, in Iran in the way that Iran is not in the United States. They did a poll of Iranians and they said, it's an amazing kind of result. They said, how many hours a day, and it may be true this week, but they said, how many hours a day do you think the, Ameri the U.S. president thinks about Iran? And they said, oh, about three, you know. And uh, maybe it is three now, this week, with, with a nuclear issue. But um, it, in, in Iran, they view, the people view that, that, that Iran is the most important foreign policy issue in the United States. <clears throat> Clearly, the United States is is the most important foreign policy issue in Iran because the issue of relations with the United States goes to the heart of what this revolution was about, which was anti-American, uh, a rejection of the, of the kind of international system which they see as being Western-dominated. And for them to normalize relations with the United States is, is a, would have a huge impact on their domestic politics. And the hardliners there are very resistant to it. It's probably more difficult in Iran today than it was, say, with Mao Zedong to decide to, bring, to invite President Nixon to China, where there have been other openings and normalizations and tough, tough relations where there have been hostile relations. Uh, yes? Well, he reappeared with an audio this weekend, of course, and uh, he does. Uh, um, <clears throat> uh, the search, of course, as you know, is sort of focused in the north, in the frontier region of Pakistan on the Afghan border. Um, uh, Iran's uh, uh, whether, whether al-Qaeda operatives in Iran are being provided safe harbor or under house arrest, you hear different versions of, of, of that. Um, Iran, uh, I mean, you have the whole Sunni-Shiite split, and it's problematic, I mean, uh, for al-Qaeda operatives to be in, their relationship with Iran is, is problematic, and, and Osama bin Laden is quite hostile towards, toward, towards the Shiites. So there's not a natural uh, affinity there, and I think the United States has made um, emphatically clear uh, uh, that state sponsorship of terrorism um, uh, and the international community as a whole, there is a norm now against state sponsorship of terrorism. The United States has a state sponsorship, sponsors of terrorist list and it includes the usual suspects, North Korea, Cuba, Sudan, etc. John Negroponte, the, the director of national intelligence, testified uh, last year that state sponsorship of terrorism as a phenomenon is declining. Basically, states want to get out of that business. They don't want to be stigmatized with it. They even want to get off the, even though it's a unilateral American list, they want to get off the U.S. state sponsors of terrorism list. They don't want to be on it. The one exception, the state that remains an active sponsor of terrorism, is Iran. But as I mentioned in my talk, the focus of the terrorism has been narrowed. It's not kind of the global operations that they ran in the 1990s. I mentioned Buenos Aires, the attack in, in Berlin. It's now very much focused on support of Palestinian rejectionist groups that use uh, terror against civilians in Israel and uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, etc. Uh, Iran has pub 
promised $50 million for Hamas, trying to step in to take the place of the United States. Whether that will be sustained over time, America has given the Palestinian Authority $400 million a year. Whether the, uh, some group of Arab states uh, and Iran would keep the Palestinian Authority, i.e., you know, Hamas going, is, is beyond the first you know, $50 million is, is, is pretty problematic. But I think it suggests what, what, how Iran on that issue, it's strategic, it's not tactical. And that's the reason why the grand bargain that some speak of vis-a-vis uh, Iran, that why don't we do a Libya with Iran, uh, uh, Libya with Iran, by which they mean get Iran to give up the nuclear program and to stop sponsoring terrorism, and the United States would give the regime a security assurance that we're not going to attack them or to overthrow them. And th- that's very problematic um, particularly in Iran, because the external behavior they view as strategic. It's part of what, uh, what the regime is about, and, and it's a source of legitimacy. That's a contested issue in Iran, increasingly, but, but currently Ahmadinejad and, 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 the, and the government would, would, would view that. Uh, Hatami uh, took a different view. Yes? You made mention of revolutionary uh, feelings for reformation amongst the people in Iran. What is our government doing to foster these, and what kind of timetable is that? Um, thanks, thanks for that question. That's that's the I always refer to like the, the uh, Fidel Castro's Revolution Day speech. And uh, if I were to subject you to like four hours of speech, uh, this this piece would have would have would have, would have been in, would have been in there. Um, a theme of my book is how is that the nuclear issues of concern to the United States, these so-called functional issues like nuclear the nuclear issue or terrorism, these discrete issues, are embedded in the broader context of our policy toward these societies. How do we think they're going to change? Uh, I mention in my book, I go back to George Kennan. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. I go back to George Kennan, the X article that you all recall from college courses, and you know the one that, that he published in Foreign Affairs in 1947, in which he laid out the strategy of containment. The, but the genius of the X article and, and the title of it uh, was indicative of, of, of its genius. It was called The Sources of Soviet Conduct. In the X article, Kennan posited that if the United States balanced Soviet power, contained the Soviet Union through NATO, etc., that the contradictions within the Soviet society would play out and the Cold War would end because the Soviet Union would cease to, 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 to exist. And that prophecy came true in 1989. Similarly, as we deal with North Korea and Iran, the nuclear question is embedded in the broader context of how do we think, what are the agents of change in these societies? How do we think these societies could change? And this is really the bread and butter of what a place like the Woodrow Wilson Center is about, trying to look at some of these underlying assumptions. Take North Korea. The prevailing view in in Washington policy circles is that, that North Korea is a weak state, a failed state, and if we can, in the vernacular, just squeeze the bastards we can make them collapse. And so therefore, you can deal with the nuclear proliferation problem in, in, in North Korea by ending the regime. And the timelines of societal change and the nuclear timelines converge. In the case of, of, of Iran, uh, one sees an interesting evolution in the thinking about Iran. During the Hatami administration, uh, there was a belief that you could, there were people inside you could work with, that Hatami was a reformer, that he could change the system. Uh, Hatami f- disappointed his followers in Iran. You, you meet, if you meet Iranians who are, who are reform-minded, they're bitterly disappointed in Hatami. In the end, Hatami was unwilling, because he was part of the regime, 
to challenge the status quo in a fundamental way. And in particular, the, leader, the, 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 the role of the supreme leader, who is, uh, whose, whose role is outside of, of any types of checks and balances. So the Bush administration, with reason, and they're not the only ones, have given up on the reformists. Instead, they're focused on the notion, the current concept of change for Iran is this revolution from below that if the United States put $75 million into some radio stations and put some money into non-governmental organizations in Iran, that we can try to foment a civil society uprising. Well, that's a, that's a huge going-in assumption. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a proposition that should, be that, that, that should be debated. The problem is that the nuclear timeline that's indeterminate, and the nuclear timeline is, 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 is urgent. We can't wait for some long-term process in Iran to play out, and, or maybe not, while the nuclear issue festers. And I think I'm being hooked here by... We're going to uh, uh, end the formal meeting, so anybody can, anybody welcome to leave if you need to get back to work. And we'll continue the informal Q&A. And I think you all will probably agree with me. I, I, I always like to say our, our speakers bring a foreign policy 101. No, not this one. This is graduate level. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.